there and welcome to the fourth in our first season of Raise the Roof podcast. I have to say that I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by two special guests who are going to talk us through the future of homes part one and they're going to answer the question in terms of whether we are still letting homes like it's the 1950s or what the homes of the 2020s and beyond could look like. So absolutely chuffed to bits to be joined today by uh, somebody who has had a long-standing influence on me and that's Paul Taylor. Paul has got some, has had some great job titles but I love his one at the moment which is Innovation Coach at Bromford. If you don't know Bromford they are a a fab housing association that work across central England and only manage um, in excess of uh, 40,000 homes. Despite um, his youthful good looks which of course you can't see on a podcast, Paul does actually confess to having worked in the houses sector for for 20 years and and despite that um he still acts as the rebel uh, with a cause rather than without a cause um, so i've interrupted you already sorry about that no go probably about 23 years but i'm winding it down to make myself look a little bit longer. <laughs> it's a common trick that we all use paul i uh, I'm, I'm nearly nearly at that 30 year stage and i now say no 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 it's uh, it's 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 over 20 years Paul uh, regularly, as you could tell, um, acts as a disruptor uh, to the to the housing sector. Doesn't follow the rules and certainly doesn't follow a convention, which is what I love about him. He does uh, regularly speak on uh, a range of topics, uh, most notably around innovation. But you probably also really know Paul because he's an avid tweeter and a frequent blogger and contributes to a a raft of publications, both inside and outside the housing sector. I really sort of used to know and keep track of time because Paul's um, an avid worldwide traveler and I knew that every 10 weeks he would be tweeting photographs from some part of the world that was on my bucket list. So, of course, uh, since uh, COVID, he's uh, he's been uh, struggling to, to get out and about. So uh, he's changed his perspective on the world by buying a drone and then uh, publishing lots of footage of how beautiful uh, several parts of the UK are. He enjoys uh, walking, he goes to the gym a lot, and he also competes in Fitbit leagues, as I know, uh, because I used to lose to him week on week, so I ditched my Fitbit and got a Garmin instead because I thought at least Paul uh, won't be trashing me uh, on that. Um, And Paul's also uh, been a gamer uh, since he was was very young, and so that's also uh, led to his, his thinking around new possibilities with technology. So um, definitely an innovator, definitely a disruptor, and definitely somebody who has a different perspective on life and not afraid to say it how it is. My other guest today is Darren Williams. Darren um, is uh, the lead innovator here at Yorkshire Housing. He joined uh, Yorkshire Housing uh, last year, just after lockdown started, and he's worked in, in housing for uh, probably around just up around six years. Uh, but before that, um, he worked in, in benefits uh, at Wakefield Council, um, but actually he saw the light and moved into IT and technology, which was his real passion. He's also a keen gamer, so we've got a bit of a bit of a sort of uh, theme going on here. And he's also an avid reader of, of sci-fi, and he confesses to the fact that Star Trek has absolutely influenced his, his everyday life, and I can't do the sort of sayings or the, or the sort of hand gestures, so I'm not even going to try. Um, all I remember is uh, Lieutenant Uhuru with a great big thing in her ear trying to get uh, a radio communication. When he's not experimenting with new technology, he enjoys long walks in the countryside. And whilst the rest of us during lockdown 
uh, rediscovered baking of bread, Darren discovered uh, the, the delights um, of woodworking. So um, I need uh, a new dining room table. Uh, so looking forward, Darren, to, to something uh, being knocked up in, uh, in the next few weeks. He's recently been involved in the dreaded D word. Now, I know for Paul, this will send a shiver down his spine. Um, after Dronegate um, a few years ago. Uh, look it up, hashtag Dronegate. But he's actually, Darren's been working with the Connected Places Catapult and looking at the use of drone technology. He's also been looking and working on the Homelink pilot as well as smart home proof of concepts and things like remote boiler management, which again is something that Paul and I have been banging on about for years and years. So that's the panel today. Uh, we're going to kick off uh, straight into it, as we always do. Um, so, Paul, you're um, arguably one of housing's most radical thinkers, if not the most radical thinker. Um, you like to push the boundaries. You like to sort of irritate and, and prompt a good debate. So from your perspective, you know, what what's the home of the future look like and what does it feel like? You know, walk, walk me through how, how that would look and feel. Thanks for thanks for inviting me, and I apologise for interrupting you. <laughs> Follow the rules. Uh, from <laughs> I, mean, I think there's a, there's a number of elements to the home of the future. I think first of all, um, as we've spoken about previously, the actual innovations around the kind of the components of the home and the interaction of the components of the home has not been a source of great progression over uh, over a number of years, really, and. The example I kind of um, compare it to is like if you look at kind of like how aircrafts kind of developed over the past few decades, there hasn't been great innovation there necessarily in terms of the overall experience. Um, they are undeniably safer, and I think we've done a lot of work in housing to make our homes much safer. If you just even look at kind of the instances of fires in this country and what fire brigades spend their time on, house fires have really, although there's been a, you know, a few high-profile tragic incidents, generally our homes and the way we maintain them are much safer. But if you think about the experience of moving into a home, of living in a home, of how you interact with your home or even your landlord, I don't think we've seen great progression there. Um, you know, it's very similar to, if you look at images of um, the experience of a consumer aircraft in the 1960s, it's more luxurious than it actually is today, unless you can afford to sit in business class or first class. But for most of us, um, the experience actually hasn't been, isn't fundamentally different. And I think it's much, it's, it's much the same with the, the home, essentially. So I think there's great opportunity now to, um, to think about what that looks like. And my contention, and you know, I'll, I'll pause there for a minute, is that I think we need a new operating system. We need to think about actually, you know, the way I kind of think about this is you've got a number of elements that are particularly, we'll, we'll concentrate on social housing for the, for, but I think this applies to, to all of us essentially. You've got in the social housing space, you've got the people. So you've got the, the tenant, the customer, you've got a housing officer, you've got an engineer, you've got a physical asset at the home, and you've probably got a kind, some kind of uh, emerging self-serve portal or something like that. But we haven't got a machine in the middle of it. We haven't got something like Google have done where they've almost like planted a kind of an AI, a machine learning within our lives to think about how things are fundamentally easier. And I think, you know, Google are a good example I would say of, you know, many people would say to me, Paul, you're a fool, that you've essentially traded all your data 
over to this third party, you know. But Google, I'm happy to do that because Google have made my life easier. They've made it, made it easier for me to make sense of the digital world and the physical world in terms of navigation around the globe, essentially. And if we think of that, about how that could be kind of transposed to our interaction within the home, how we use uh, how we use components within the home, how landlords pick up information within the home, how there's a machine in that loop. We put a machine in that loop to better, um, to make it much more efficient for all of us. I think there's, there's a huge opportunity there that we haven't even begun to properly imagine yet. Great sort of comparison there in terms of the airline industry, and I think that sort of really resonates, and that's one I'm going to, going to steal with pride, because uh, I think that is a really good one. I will, I will of course, copyright it for, for you there, Paul, as well. I'm interested, really, because you, you mentioned Google, and, and one of the things that you've done, which really, really stuck with me, was when you did your when when the Bromford Lab did the the work with Google Glass, and I, and I remember that you did um, you, you know you, you gave them to customers who were viewing properties, um, and and you know you you were sort of saying that actually some of the things that that they were looking at were completely at odds with where we were spending money and what we felt were important to customers. Uh, um, I mean, just 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 unpack that a little bit more because I just thought some of that was absolutely fascinating and it has. Interestingly, it's continued to change my mindset and, and my sort of conversations with colleagues around voids. But also just anything similar that you've got in the pipeline at, at, at the lab as well. I think, again, be really useful and really interesting for, for people listening to this podcast to know, you know, the sorts of things that people like you, and I'm, I'm going to come to Darren in a minute, but people like you and Darren, you know, are, are working on at the moment. Yeah, great. And I think, you know, that, that, that does link up in terms of what we're, what we're both working on and thinking about. So just as a kind of backtrack, Google Glass was a kind of very early stage eyewear that allowed the user to, um, to overlay digital information within one eye and actually kind of, you know, give functionality of things like Google Maps within the eye and also record things. It crashed and burned quite early for two reasons. One, people look like complete idiots. Basically, you know, and I had to summon up a lot of bravery to walk down the street while explaining Google Glass because everybody thought you looked a complete idiot, and you did. And privacy concerns, because it was actually, you know, a few years ago now, and the idea of being recorded by people in the street was something that seemed a little creepy. Now, that went away, but that technology is still being developed by Google um, Facebook are launching their own um, glasses shortly, uh, virtual eyewear, uh, Apple as well. It will come back. It will come back in some kind of form to think about how we tr how we move the information on our smartphones to a visual field. So, yeah, back in the day, so what we did was a kind of a sort of proof of concept about what would happen if we actually recorded the experience from a tenant moving into a new home pure from their perspective we did it from the housing offer perspective housing officer perspective and also from the tenant perspective to see what they picked up and what was interesting about it nick uh, we've said previously is what they looked at that we didn't when they moved into a home because very noticeably we were looking at things from obviously a landlord perspective not a customer or tenant perspective. So, for instance, one of the things we found out that we hadn't even thought about was the amount of time um, tenants spent when they were going on kind of an inspection of a home or, 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 or preparing to move in, looking outside the window. 
you know yeah. they look out the property for the view they were looking at garden space they were looking over other properties they were looking about kind of the, the neighborhood generally and everything something that we never looked at at all so what that made us kind of think about as about was about actually how do we design those processes from a much more um tenant-led perspective now i would say there when you said about what we what we're doing next or whatever i don't think we've moved on anywhere near as much as fast as we could have with that and i was talking to a colleague the other day who said this thing about you know goes back to what i said about putting a machine in the system what would happen if you really did interact and pick up what a a person moving into the home was picking up from day one and i think there's there's huge amounts of um of possibilities there i'll just say one thing before before you hand over here you know i've got to be very careful in terms of i, I don't appear to kind of blame tenants for damage or anything else like that that's not where i'm coming from if you think about this is the single most expensive a housing association does build homes and repair and refurbish homes and we hand over the keys to an asset that i'll just say it's worth 200 grand for the for argument's sake or whatever to somebody with no instruction whatsoever you're literally just handing keys over or whatever yeah. then get on with it you know, you might give somebody an instruction about how the boiler works or, or something like that. But, and we all know, Nick, when you hand the keys over at that point, the person's not even listening to what you're saying anyway. They want the keys and they want to move in. And then we have problems sometimes down the line, okay, uh, because of how the property has been lived in or maintained. And and then we almost like blame people for that in that sense about, well, why didn't people open the windows? Why is there condensation in these properties? Now, I know I'm not tenant blaming here because i know what i was like when i first moved out of home and when i became a student and lived with five other lads and we got socks in the microwave put jeans on the radiators all day all night put things down the toilet that were not meant to go down the toilet and i know the problem that we caused we didn't know it wasn't actually ill will or malice now if you think about how we could how we could plant a machine in that loop to think about actually how people can you know run the home more efficiently look after the home more efficiently but going back to the google glass example see it through their eyes not yeah. through ours i think that is um, a huge possibility and i would you know it's, it's one of the things i really do want to look at collaborating with other housing associations on yeah well i'm i'm sure i'm coming to darren in, in a second but i'm sure we yeah, we'd be we'd be really keen to sort of speak to you and work with you on that i think that whole point about you know the google glass and the learning from that i just think it, it's just so incredibly powerful you know when people talk about you know housing associations listening to customers well well there's probably no better example than that in terms of saying well actually you know all the money that we were spending internally in the property but actually if the garden was overgrown or if you know we hadn't really sort of cared for for the surrounding area then of course we're human aren't we you know you you've got friends and relatives coming to your front door if the journey to your front door is a is a shocker you're going to meet them down the road aren't you and you're going to feel ashamed of where you live and, and i think it's just that whole thing and and you're absolutely right paul you know the whole thing about you know expecting people to 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 sort of really clock um you know instructions around uh, when when you you know because moving home you know I, I was i was on a on a sort of a webinar the other night and i think you know, moving home is one of the most exciting things you do in your life and all you want is the keys and get in there you're not listening to a single word anybody's telling you uh whether it's about you know the the sort of payments or how things work you just want to get in you want to get your, your stuff in and start living your life there and and i think where we need to probably get back to is, is probably 
going back three, four months later once the dust has settled and people are in a much more receptive way of, of, of hearing that. I want to come back to, to, to how about um, how we can do more with customers around um, use of smart home tech. Uh, but just before I do, I'm going to flip over to, to Darren if I can. And Darren, I know you've been you've been trialing a whole host of, of kit and uh, you do a very good job of trying to keep me at arm's length and, uh, and not get too involved and too excited by it all. Um, so is there any is there any learning you can share both uh, with me because uh, you do do a keep you do a good job of keeping me at arm's length, uh, but also with others listening to the podcast. You know, it, it, you know, what about those that are thinking of going down this path? You know, what what's worked, what's not? You know, what advice would you give them? Uh, so it's very interesting what Paul was saying there about putting the machine in the loop and, and giving that education to the tenant. We're, we're currently working on a project with a company called Homelink. Uh, so Homelink is an IoT company that was bought last year by ACO. Um, ACO supply many of the smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors to the to the sector. Um, so these sensors that we're putting into homes will be temperature and humidity sensors that will look for conditions that might let things like mold and condensation flourish and there's a resident app which will then give feedback and it's very simplified kind of a little gamified there's a, a picture of a house it has a smile on it if everything's good if it's not good the, the house starts crying um, but there's some really interesting insights from that that tenants and certainly I, I myself probably didn't pick up. Um, air quality and ventilation is really important, especially in older houses. I live in a 100-year-old house, um, and certainly we were getting a bit of condensation in here. And the simple answer to that is open the window for 15 minutes. Um, what you can see though with this resident app is that might drop the temperature in that room by half a degree but actually it'll flush all the air out. These sensors also do carbon, monox uh, carbon dioxide detection as well. Um, so it'll, it'll sense the air quality, although it's only looking for carbon dioxide. The, the thought is carbon dioxide keeps bad company. So if there's a high proportion of carbon dioxide in the room, there's probably other stuff in the room that you don't want there as well. So it sounds like one of the people who used to live in Paul's house when he was a student, there must have been a carbon dioxide. It was one of those five that he lived with. <laughs> Oh, that, that resonated with me as well. I was in a similar situation where there was nine of us. Uh, oh, blimey, gosh. Oh. <laughs> the Homelink trial is really good. And the other thing that the, the Homelink trial is showing us as well is the, the modern methods of connectivity. So all of this technology is going to rely on actually being able to access data and being able to show that data to the landlord and to the resident of the home. Previously, this would always rely on something like Wi-Fi, which is gets expensive. We can't assume that it's in everybody's home. The Homelink trial that we're doing is using a technology called LoRaWAN, which is a wide area, low power, uh, radio system and we're utilizing a network that has been set up by Leeds Council. What that means is because it's so low power the sensors will last for seven to ten years rather than seven to ten months um, so it's a lot easier it should be a lot easier for us to scale this up and manage it in the future. Do Leeds Council know you're hacking into their network? <laughs> they, they do, they do. <laughs> yeah, they, they uh, offered us the opportunity to work with them on, on this project. And um, what, what, what sort of cost? Darren, what sort of the people are listening in and thinking, oh, that sounds good, but it's going to cost me an arm and a leg. What, what, what's the ballpark on it? Uh, so for these, the ballpark would be about 300 quid for the sensors, about £100 each for three sensors, um, and then that will include the data cost uh, as well for a couple of years. And I think the data cost after that is 
it's it's sort of minimal, uh, fifty quid for six years or something like that. But I suppose it's it's that versus the you know the the cost of dealing with you know a damp or condensation or a disrepair claim even you know it's it's it's, it's offsetting. So yeah, absolutely absolutely get that. Other one for me, Darren is a, I I believe you have dared to tread where many others have stepped away from. And you've reopened up the uh, the the drone debate. Uh, I can feel drone gate hashtag coming coming back to haunt me and Paul. But you know, again, it's it's something that's been doing the rounds for a while, but but people have never really sort of I, I think grasped hold of the the sort of benefits of it. Um, although it has helped uh, Paul to feel uh, like he's he's is uh, abroad again by getting his drone footage back and realizing that that's what it looks like from a plane. Um, but you know. Darren, just just tell us a little bit more about what what you've been up to recently on that front. Yeah, sure. So we uh, we were approached by the Connected Places Catapult to get involved in a demonstration to to show the use of uh, drones within social housing and the benefits that they can give. Um, we had a look at some use cases. Um, the two sort of things that stood out to us really were using drones to more safely inspect high level areas. Uh, and then the other one was about thermal inspection. So checking the energy efficiency and the heat loss of our properties by sending a drone over with a thermal camera and looking for leaks. Now, those thermal inspections work best at night and in the colder months because they're looking for the difference yeah. in the temperature between inside and outside. We did this demonstration in the middle of June, so it wasn't exactly <laughs> the best time. So we, we doubled down, we focused on the higher level inspections. We, we inspected three locations. Uh, one of them was a converted church, um, which has got 34 leaseholders in it, which was very difficult to inspect. Previously, I had a ground-based inspection done that didn't really give the full picture. Um, so over about a day and a half, that particular location was fully mapped out, fully photographed. And then out of the back of that, we've had a full 3D rendered model from it as well. And we've actually had a BIM model developed for us uh, by a BIM company called uh, Twindit. I think it really shows the the use, the, the benefits of it. There was sort of two or three guys on the ground. Um, there was no scaffolding needed, very yeah. no pickers needed. So you're already saving time and money. You're not having the lead time to get the scaffolding put up. What we did find from that was we were a bit worried that tenants wouldn't be accepting of the drones. Um, so we wrote to all of the residents in these areas, all the leaseholders, all the tenants, and we told them what we were doing. We told them why we were doing it. And then to make sure we could capture any concerns or questions, I put my mobile number on the letter um to take any any questions we didn't get any none at all right. on the day when the drone was up we had a few people come over um there was no concerns they were just interested to see what was happening I had a chat with the drone operators i think what we learned from there is that tenants are a lot more accepting of some of this technology than assume they are yeah i think um i think paul you carry some scars from this don't you in terms of customers views versus the sector's views on it yeah i mean i think one of the things there i mean that, that resonates so much what you just said darren because you know when we did you know some drone trials ourselves but actually it's not about drones it's about any technology actually mm. you know reaction often both from the sector and also sometimes internally from our own management sometimes is around you can't do that. And, and, and excuses will be trotted out, such as, as we all know, people don't have access to Wi-Fi, when, as you've just alluded to, connectivity 
is not just down to Wi-Fi alone, first of all. Um, people won't, you know, like, they, they won't want that imposition on their lives. They won't want that data recorded. We had exactly the same experience with you on the drones, but also on centre trials ourselves, where people yeah. said, actually, people won't want their landlord monitoring them within the home. Well, guess what? They will, if there's a benefit to them, won't yeah. they? Because yeah. this, this whole thing talking about tenants as if they are some subspecies, uh, <laughs> fundamentally different to, 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 to anybody else, People want their lives made easier or cheaper or more efficient or easier to do, whatever. And anything that will give them a kind of glimpse of that, they're going to get into it. So I think your point about that is really important, that sometimes I think we listen too much to the outer voice outside our organisations and sometimes the inner voice as well about the things we shouldn't be doing. But, um, you know... Even the regulations, as you know, um, Darren, around drones as, as ease, that was one of the barriers in the way of wh whether you could kind of use them in a kind of um, a commercial or not a, a commercial sense. But I think a lot of these are kind of myths that we need to collectively bust if we're to make the progressions, you know, that we would like to have seen. I think, Nick, you and I would probably agree that the ambitions that we had for kind of smart homes maybe five, six years ago haven't been as, you know, haven't been progressed maybe as much as we'd like. And I think some of that is that internal voice holding us back. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Paul. And I sort of described it internally to some colleagues the other week because I still feel like, you know, we, we're living, uh, it feels like you've gone into a Tesla showroom and somebody's wheeled out a 1985 Ford Escort with, you know, winding up windows and a choke and all that sort of stuff. Most, yeah, there's some people listening to this going, what's a Ford Escort? What's a choke? Wind your windows. Yeah, what is it? It's some carry horse-drawn carriage. But I think that the tech is there and we know the tech is there and we know its ability to make our homes. You know, the one I always, always get absolutely staggered by is why we still have keys for a property. Why do we use why do we use 16th century technology when actually, you know, I open my phone with sort of buy, you know, with, with you know, either my fingerprint or my, or my facial rack. I can open my car just by walking up to it with the phone, my phone in the pocket. But I then have to find some sort of 16th century set of keys to, to get in my, my home. And also how much we spend as a landlord doing lock changes every year, whether that's because people have, have, have lost their keys or because people have left the property without giving us notice or just because from a security point of view, we want to, we want to change the lock, say, on tenancy turnover. And you just think all of that, it just seems like a complete nonsense. And... You know, this isn't new, is it? Because you walk into a hotel and the first thing they give you is just a little card. And so that's how you get in your room. And yet, you know, we we, we just seem to be miles behind on something. So I, I sorry, Paul, I'm venting. I'm, it's cathartic. It's 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 like a counselling session, this for me. I, I, like, I like your venting. And I think there's, there's some of those things that we have to accept in some sense that the risk averse from within our organisations is always, it's, it's there for good reason, actually. Yeah. Because Look at what we do. You know, we're, we're giving people homes, we're supplying homes, and there, there are all sorts of um, issues that, that, that come with that. So um, it is higher risk than just giving somebody a, you know, a, a card for the hotel door where you can call someone out straight away from reception. However, you, you're correct, Nick, that the year on year, the technology progresses. So one of the things that said about, like, keys was around oh, you know, well, these things aren't secure enough. Well, you know, Face ID is pretty secure 
okay yeah. unless somebody's got the same face you know so you it's like, another one might mind believe me you get a copy of that exactly so it's like you know it's it's exactly that isn't it so and there's things that you know and that's what we should look to those kind of markets we should look to those kind of innovators and companies because if they're making you i mean everything is in your phone isn't it absolutely everything if i can log on to my bank with face id okay we surely should be able to solve the key problem at home. I think that's a really good point. That and I go back to when I, you know, when I was sixteen and started working in a uh, in a filling station and taking credit cards and you swipe them through a machine and take carbon copies and physically compare a signature that somebody's written and and you think how secure is that these days? Uh, you know, compared to now, you take your phone out of your pocket, you unlock it with your fingerprint and scan it on the contactless payment. And, and that's where, Dale, and I think maybe, you know, this is my glass half full moment rather than half empty, is that maybe COVID and the pandemic will be an accelerant of those things as much as anything else, you know, both in terms of people's adoption um, because they've had to adopt things. You know, I know from, like, you know, speaking to my mom and a lot of her friends or whatever, so people are in the kind of... Uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s or whatever, that they've adopted technology in ways that they didn't do previously. So I think, you know, if I hear anyone in the housing sector now start saying tenants aren't ready for it, I'm just done with that conversation. I'm not yeah, even yeah. to have it anymore. Yeah, with, with, with you all the way, Paul, with you all the way on that, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be right there on the barricades with you. I think I want to pick up on that, actually, because I think it was a point that you raised before, uh, both of you, interestingly, in, in various ways. And I suppose, you know, if we are able to sort of get more of a smart home type solution um, offered and our homes start to feel more like it's 2021 or 2022 rather than 1950s, you know, there is helping people. It's a bit like the same transition that you need to make from a fossil fuel car to an electric car. There's a different way of using it, even though you know what the basics are. So I'm just interested in, in both your views, really, in terms of how we help our customers make that transition, because I, not in a patronising way, because in the same way, you know, I've tried to kick my home out, out to be as smart as possible, but I still have to educate both myself and indeed some of my family who still struggle with some of the stuff that they get really frustrated I've introduced. So just, just again, any any thoughts really on how, how we take people who might have lived in a, in the same way for, say, the last 20, 30, 40 years into, you know, introducing them to a, a, a completely different environment, as I say, similar to how the automobile industry is having to change? I'll, I'll go first then. So I, I think this is the important bit, isn't it? Because this is the behaviour change. Yeah. Yeah. Not the technology in one sense is the easy bit. Um, I think we have got to think more creatively around how we take people on that journey, as you say, Nick. And that is, as you say, is not patronising. That's thinking about how how we do that. You know, we collaborated with one, another one of the catapults, actually, the Energy Systems Catapult. They have a series of they call them living labs. It's about 100 homes that are kind of fully kitted out. And they do behavioural observations. They do interviews. The homeowners, they are part of the experiment. They are actually feeding into how you can maximise and use this technology, but also how your behaviour changes as a result of it. And we put five of our homes, because they hadn't got any tenants on the programme, into that. And it was fascinating in terms of what we kind of picked up and what we kind of learned. And what I think we probably need to do is to almost build upon the kind of experiments that kind of Bromford Lab have done, that what Yorkshire Housing are doing. They are great, but we now need to think about how we connect them you know, maybe across the sector and think about, you know, our customers, our tenants as partners in this, to think around, you know, you're not being experimented upon yeah. from a landlord. We are experimenting together 
on yeah. action. Does this make your life more efficient? Does this make the running of our homes more efficient? Something you alluded to the other night, Nick, about if I, if I do make your operating costs more efficient, what's in it for me? What do yeah. I get as a result of those things? So I think we need to probably now think about actually how we kind of join up some of these technologies, but actually have a different relationship with our tenants about actually the user experience and how they can actually take part in that. But as you say, you know, behavior change can go really quickly. COVID's a really good, you know, example yeah. of people sanitizing hands or wearing masks. <laughs> behavior change can happen overnight, but that's usually when it's mandated. We don't want to be, uh, you know, I, certainly speaking for Bromford, we don't want to be mandating to yeah. our tenants how they should kind of live their lives. It's got to be a partnering thing. It's got to be something we share the benefits of both. Yeah, please, whatever you do, don't speak to Mrs. Atkin, uh, because she'll be saying, why didn't you sort of co-design some of the stuff you brought into our house uh, before you just brought it in and switched it on? So, But no, it's really, really powerful points. And I think you're right, Paul. For me, this is the crux of the issue, the, the behavioural change. And it's not just amongst our customers, it's also our own mindset internally as well, isn't it? So, Darren, anything you want to you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's about uh, partly as well making it as seamless as possible and as easy, almost invisible. Uh, there's the Arthur C. Clarke um, quotes, uh, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. And basically, we want to inject <laughs> a bit of magic into these into our tenants' lives, our customers' lives. I think as well, it's about joining it up. Um, so currently, uh, we have a lot of different providers for this sort of technology and every provider wants to sell you their own app, their own dashboard. Even in, in my home, I've got one app for the heating, I've got another app for the lights. Um, I do use other systems that then collect that all together. Um, but I think it is about joining everything up and giving the customer a holistic view of their home rather than here's a view of your temperature, here's a view of your, you know, your security cameras or something. And, and it is about, like Paul says, it's about working with the customer to understand what's of value to them, what are the most important things, and, and basically take them on that journey, start with the most important things, and, and once they start seeing the value in that, they become a bit more accepting to the next bit along the way. Um, yeah, it's got to be done in collaboration. Yeah, bang on. Absolutely bang on. And um, it's always a sign of a fab, fab discussion when you realise that you've, you've, you're have you in the last five minutes and it's a quick fire round. And that's exactly where we find ourselves. So I'm going to flip over to, to some uh, quick fire questions. So uh, veterans of this podcast will know this is where uh, our guests get uh, literally one or two word answers to a series of of interesting questions that uh, lift the lid on what really uh, makes them tick. So, uh, Darren, first one to you, and it could be career limiting if you get this wrong. Uh, Apple or Android? Android, I'm afraid. Oh, oh, Paul, come on, save yourself. Apple. I had an Android experience five years ago, and I'm still receiving counselling for it. So <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love you, Paul. That's why I love you. Uh, right, next one. As big gamers, I'll come to you first, Paul. PlayStation or Xbox? Oh, that, that is, that's a hot one. I'm, I'm split, but I've, I've erred onto PlayStation. Oh. Darren? PC. Uh, oh. reality. Oh, very, very controversial. Right, just while we're still on games, best game you'd recommend to somebody who's never gamed before? I'd say start with Zelda and work up from there. Work, work up from Zelda. Darren? The, the original Super Mario Brothers, it teaches you how to play the game itself. Oh, Yeah, I'm actually, I was going to go with that, actually. I was just, I guess, oh, yeah, that's a good one. 
Even Jada, our producer's nodding at that one. So yeah, you've definitely you've definitely struck a chord on that one. Okay, next one. Other than all your Android devices, Darren, worst gadget you've ever bought? Oh, I, I bought a mini disc player once when I really should have bought an iPod. <laughs> there you go, Apple. You see, I, I rest my case. Uh, Paul, worst gadget you've ever bought? Do you remember when people used to take discmans into gyms? Oh and yes. How embarrassing was that? I mean, this yeah. is kind of age, Nick. But I remember buying a, a gym discman and then seeing people walk around with these little things, and I was like, "What the hell have they got?" And they were like the very early kind of MP3 kind of iPod uh, uh, things, and I was like, "I'd look like a complete freak." Yeah, and if you ran if you ran with them on, it used to jump all over the place as well, which is completely the point of it. Yeah, one thing at a time, and it jumped about all the time. Absolutely useless. Oh right. So um, let's flip it round. What's the one gadget uh, you'd take with you on a desert island? And as it refers to desert island, got to come to you, Paul, first because you've doubtless taken one somewhere. Well, I'm going to cheat on this because I would say my my mom and my my other half always say your phone is perpetually attached to your hand. <laughs> So I'm going to take it as a given that I've got my phone. So yeah. I say I say AirPods or whether any Bluetooth. Oh. I, think, I think Bluetooth, um, you know, speakers or headphones are a major breakthrough. Okay, great stuff, Darren. Uh, if I've got power and connectivity, it'll be the phone. Uh, the portal to the world's collected information would be useful on a desert island. If I don't have those two things, it'll be a Swiss Army knife. Oh wow, wow! This is this is eclectic. Not what I was expecting. Um, so whilst we're on desert islands, um, now we're opening up post lockdown, and also as we have housing's most intrepid traveler with us today uh, paul that is you what's your favorite holiday destination gotta to come to you first on this paul i'd probably say region i like southeast asia i, 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 like, I like the kind of they're incredibly young um incredibly diverse incredibly innovative and creative i think you will see a load of innovation coming from that region over the next uh, 10 years and I love the culture. I have to say, really inclined to agree with you. I absolutely love Thailand. Just amazing. And by far and away, much better uh, connectivity than I ever get in the UK, which is just, well, you know, you can be in a beach in the middle of nowhere and you've got 100 meg sort of uh, connectivity on Wi-Fi. You just think, how on earth is that possible? Uh, Darren? Uh, for me, it'd probably be the lakes or North Wales because I, I like to take the dog with me when I go on holiday. Yeah, yeah, you can't beat one of those beaches in North Wales on a cold autumnal day. The dog just running down the beach. Yeah, I get it. absolutely get it. Right, okay, we've got just a, a minute or so left. So, most interesting person you've ever met, Darren? Uh, I exchanged a nod with Jarvis Cocker, famous Yorkshireman, Ooh. on a bridge in Florence once. Wow, wow. Paul? I think Richard Branson, I did a speaking gig and shared a green room with him. I would say he was like top of the bill and I was like number three. <laughs> on the bill but i did meet him and i did have a chat with him oh uh, and impressions of him uh, i mean really nice guy very shy guy actually oh. you know it was quite it, it was quite uh, impressive to see how he kind of turned it on when he came on stage but behind the scenes he was very quiet right okay last one from me then so the last 18 months a uh, bit of an understatement but, but but they have been pretty disruptive and paul and and darren you both referred to that Give me one prediction for the next 12 months ahead. 
Uh, Darren, come to you first. Uh, I can see um, augmented reality and virtual reality becoming more popular, um, especially if Apple release their virtual reality device. I think that'll be what, what kicks it off. Great stuff. Paul? I, I mean, I'm going to be a bit generous. I think, you know, we've got to expect the unexpected. No one could predict what's happened, and nobody can accurately predict what happens next as a result of the fallout of how we've spent the, uh, the past uh, 12, 18 months. So I think the main thing for me is, you know, not to be held back by your kind of pre-existing prejudices and the way you've always kind of done business. And if you can shake out of that, um, that will be a good next 12 months. That's great. Superb. And what a fantastic way to end. Um, I've got loads and loads of sound bites that we're, we're going to take out of this. So I'm really looking forward to, to playing it back um, and pulling those out as part of the promotion material, which reminds me um, to thank uh, everybody uh, who is listening to this podcast. Thank you so, so much for, for making the time. A massive thank you to both Paul and Darren for taking the time out to, to sort of contribute to this podcast. Our next episode builds upon this. It's the Future of Homes Part 2. Uh, which talks about the role of shared ownership. So please keep an eye out for that. And um, please don't forget that you can find this and all our other previous episodes of Raising the Roof um, via your usual podcast provider. But that's it for me. It's a wrap. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Bye.